，鬼岛之音 ，Ghost Island Media。Hey, remember March? No, not March 2020, where the pandemic spiraled out of control in the U.S. I mean, March like marching, like the things that we used to do. Well, there was one really important march. Actually, there were several, but the march I liked the most was the March for Science. Thousands of scientists marched on Washington D.C., and they also marched all around the world and other states. And this was important because this was right when Donald Trump was removing climate change from the White House website. So this March for Science happened. All the scientists started to get politically active. And you might think to yourself, "Well, I bet nothing happened," but you would be wrong because people were elected. And I spoke to one of those elected officials who came out of the March for Science, Dr. Jasmine Clark, who was elected to the Georgia's House of Legislature in 2018. My name is Representative Dr. Jasmine Clark. I represent Georgia's House District 108 within Gwinnett County, which is the second largest county in the state of Georgia. Dr. Jasmine Clark is a microbiologist. Helped organize Atlanta's March for Science, and you know, actually has like published papers and can read a scientific journal and you know all that good science stuff. People describe policymaking as like sausage making. It's gross. It's nasty. At the end of the day, you might get like a really great product, but a lot of stuff went into making that happen. We wanted to sit down and talk with Jasmine because she is what we need more of: scientists in office, scientists as policy and decision makers. We need people who believe in reality to be making policy. Otherwise,、um, things are going to be pretty bad. I don't think we can take another four years of、uh, the previous administration in the U.S. And remember the our West Coast tour where Emily and I went to the Association for the Advancement of Sciences, the AAAS, and we went on the SciMic stage. Well, as you can imagine, that's not happening this year because of the pandemic. However, it is virtual this year, and because of that, we had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Clark as part of the AAAS 2021 SciMic Virtual Podcast Library. In my conversation with Dr. Clark, we talk about what motivated her to run for office. Georgia's unique energy challenges and why people seem to think solar is not possible there, and we conclude on what it means to actually make the law and what it means to actually be a science-based politician. Listen to the end because she has some pretty frightening anecdotes about people not reading the laws they sign. So, go ahead and listen. I really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Clark. She's an inspiration and a source of much-needed hope in the world right now. So, play the tape. Hi, I'm Nature Nate, and this is Waste Not, Why Not, a sustainability science podcast on how not to save the environment. I'm an environmental consultant based in Taiwan, and I work on energy, ocean, and waste issues. Okay, so hello, Representative Dr. Jasmine Clark. How are you doing today? How are things? Things are great. Things are busy, but I'm doing pretty well. You know, the last Monday of 2020. So I feel like you know that's kind of a good thing. That's right. We've made it this far. You know, I think everyone's familiar that over the last four years, the U.S. had done very little for the environment, and we know that has really long-standing implications and things like that. And you're a representative in Georgia, and you got into politics relatively recently, is what I've gleaned from reading about you online. What made you want to run for office? So actually,、um, science. When I directed the March for Science here in Atlanta, Georgia, so it was a satellite march to the March for Science in Washington D.C. 
that was the first time that I really had done anything like that. Mm. So I've been a science nerd all my life. And mostly I stuck to my bench work and eventually to my classroom and curriculum development. That's pretty much, you know, my focus. But, you know, when climate science is being attacked and when science in general is being attacked and academia is under attack, I am the kind of person where I really just couldn't sit idly by and let that slide. And so I stood up. I was democratically chosen to be the leader of the March for Science in Atlanta. And with an amazing team of people, we put on a march that had about 10,000 participants. Wow. Yeah. And then from there, I kind of got the activism bug. But the thing about being an activist, which I think it is very important, you know, that's that's an important part of the democratic process. Right. But for me, it was still not enough. I really felt like we needed more voices at the table that would actually be willing to listen. And so that's why I signed up to run for office, because I felt like we needed those science voices in the room instead of outside of the room yelling at the people in the room. Let's just dive into it and really explain, you know, what does science bring to government? I think, you know, when I maybe I was just too nerdy watching Star Trek as a kid, but I assumed that there was science in the government. And that's how things run. Now that I'm older, you know, that's obviously not the case. There's to be polite, there's, you know, emotions, there's different perspectives on ways to govern society. So what then is the value of bringing science into government and articulating it as such? So I think there's a lot of value. Number one, I think there are certain topics where a science voice is just important. Climate science is one of those things. There are so many people that don't really understand science enough Mm. that it's easy for them to discount it and just say, I think you're making a bigger deal out of this than it needs to be. Because they just, they don't understand the data. Mm. But not just science topics or science policy, but I think policymaking in general. When you have a scientist in the room or someone who is trained in the sciences, someone who's had to defend a dissertation, as a scientist, we're inquisitive by nature. We ask a lot of questions. Hmm. We want to dig a little bit deeper than what's at the surface. We question conclusions all the time. That's, you know, that's what we do. That's how we hold each other accountable. So in a government setting, scientists contribute to the accountability of those in the room. They now realize that there are people in the room that are not just going to take data and conclusions at face value. And I always say this with caution because I don't want to make it seem like the lawyers in the room and the business owners in the room and, uh, you know, other people from other things. I don't want to make it seem like they're not also scrutinizing just as much as we are. You know, it's just a different way. I just think that science training, we approach things maybe a little differently than some people in other fields do. And so it just increases the accountability. Right, right. You want a diversity of voices when you're making policy, perspectives, modes of thinking. And I think it's important what you say about, you know, not discounting other viewpoints, because even with science, you could kind of go the other way. Okay, only experts can comment on certain issues. And then that can recreate some of the problems we've had. Because, you know, if you have an industry expert on, let's just say, like certain types of plastics, those laws might be negative for the environment, but because that person's an expert in plastics, then it's it's deemed okay. So I think what you said makes sense about thinking in different modes. 
Is there a specific example? I know your background's in microbiology and, and medicine. Have you been able to use your training specifically in, in terms of legislative work? Um, well, so not as much as I would like to. So, you know, even in the middle of a pandemic, I am in microbiology and I actually uh, specialize in viruses. So it sounds um, like you're the right person to be right. <laughs> elected right now. But uh, even though that is the case, politics still kind of got in the way of me being able to truly contribute the way I would have liked to. But I will say that there were times where I used my science training. Mm. So not necessarily microbiology specifically, but my training in science to approach a subject. Two good examples. The first example is we were uh, debating a bill and they kept quoting an article from the National Academies of Sciences in order to draw the conclusion of why this particular machine that they wanted to buy was the better machine to buy. Hmm. You know, here's the thing. I could probably read anything, any book, any article, you know, and I could probably find a string of words that could make my point if I wanted. (laughs) I think it's more important that when you read scientific articles, you read it for understanding and not for finding the sentence that you need to make your point. Right, right. And so that same paper, I read the whole thing. And if you read the paragraph before, but specifically the paragraph after, you know, the conclusions, it actually said the exact opposite of what they were saying is the reason why we should get these machines. Wow. And so I had the opportunity to basically put it on the record that y'all are using this paper to make your point. However, it's not making the point that you're making. And I want the record to reflect that. Wow. And then the second time was when there was a bill about abortion. It was basically, in effect, an abortion ban. And they were quoting a another source about when life begins. Mm. And I looked at the quote and I was like, well, as I said before, I would like to see what was written before and what was written after that. I would like to see this. I would also like to see when it was written because, you know, Thoughts have changed over time, mm. the more we know in science. Yeah. And so I um, I looked for the quote and I couldn't find it. Then I got my team, my staff, and I said, hey, you all, can you help me find this quote? Because I'm really trying to find it and I can't find it. And um, And then I realized literally in the 11th hour, like as we were debating the bill, I realized that the reason why I couldn't find the quote was because they made it up. <laughs> Not only did they make up the quote, oh they made up the organization that gave the quote. So they made up an organization, then they made up a quote, and they stuck it in a bill. And my habit of wanting to read through the things that are being put into bills came in handy that day. I called them out on it and they eventually had to go in and redraft the you know bill and take that language out because they were being dishonest. And if I had not caught that, that language would still be in our, it would be in Georgia law right now. So, you know, that was also my moment of validation where I was like, okay, there definitely needs to be a me in this room. Yes, And it would be amazing if there was more of me's in this room to catch these things. Who knows how many other things have passed with that type of dishonesty. 
Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's something that makes you feel uncomfortable knowing that for years, decades, how many fake organizations, how many fake statistics just get entered into law. Um, so for next, for policy, big interest in the environment on the show and climate change. I wanted to talk a bit about I saw on your platform you supported renewable energy in Georgia and, and climate change policies broadly. And I'm a bit of an energy nerd. So I looked up Georgia's electricity mix and I was pretty surprised to find out that renewables are pretty low. And of that, you know, I think it's just nine percent is from hydropower. And there's, you know, a few other percentage points from biomass and other renewables. But the vast majority is fossil fuels with I think like two nuclear reactors. So have you been able to work on energy or climate change policies for Georgia? And how do you approach that? How do you work with your other legislators? Because it seems like Georgia has quite a difficult energy challenge with like importing lots of fossil fuels and and pretty high energy electricity usage. Yeah, that's a really good question because in Georgia, power, so, you know, your lights and things like that in your home is provided either by Georgia Power, which is part of the Southern Company all over the United States, or by the EMCs, uh, which are basically uh, co-ops. Georgia Power provides most of the power to our urban and suburban areas where there's actually a large population. And then out in our rural areas, because Georgia has a large amount of rural areas, our EMCs are what provide the power out there. And one of the biggest impediments to us switching or changing up our energy portfolio in Georgia is the fact that in the United States, when a power company goes out and invests in an area, they are promised a return on their investment. Mm. So they cannot lose money. It's not allowed. And this was put in place in order to encourage them to actually provide infrastructure. So, you know, if they feel like if I extend this power out here, we're not going to get our money back because no one lives there. Mm. You know, we're not going to get a return on our investment. That has really stopped the progress on renewables. Because when it comes to things like community solar or allowing people to provide their own energy through solar and things like that, the the electric companies say, well, that's fine if that's what you want to do. But that just means we're going to have to raise the rates on your neighbors who don't have solar panels on their house. Hmm. And so they create this competition between those who can afford things like solar and those who can't. And I think it's an artificial competition. Um, It doesn't have to be that way. I think with a little innovation, with technology, and I think with just political will, we could change our energy portfolio to something that is much better for our environment. Right now, we have members of our Public Service Commission, which is the commission that makes all the decisions about utilities in Georgia that are really huge fans of nuclear. Hmm. So while... Literally the entire country and pretty much the world has moved away from nuclear. We are currently in the process of building two new nuclear reactors. Whoa, that's uh, that's uncommon. Wow. Literally, it's I mean, no one else is doing this. And it's a project that's gone on for years. It's way over budget, like beyond over budget. The rate payers, so the people who pay their utility bill, they're paying for it. And because of that law that says Georgia Power gets a return on their investment, we can't say, no, we don't want this anymore Mm. because they say, well, regardless, 
this project has already started. We've got to pay for it. So one way or another, these reactors are getting paid for. And so um, right now, a lot of members on our Public Service Commission are pro-nuclear, and they're just now warming up to solar. And when I say just now, I mean like in the last couple of years. Oh. So now they're starting to invest in solar farms and things like that. But because battery storage is still a little on the expensive side, they are not really convinced that it's economical. And so there's just all this... There's a lot of politics involved yeah. in it. And, and, you know, but honestly, five years ago, if you would have asked someone on the Public Service Commission why we don't have solar, they would have told you it's because we don't have enough sun. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to Georgia. We have a lot of sun. It's hot here. <laughs> um, so that that excuse really didn't hold water. But that's just where we are. So it's been a slow process. I, maybe 10 years from now, if we were having the same conversation, it would be a lot different. But right now, we're still in the, the infant stages of changing our energy portfolio to something that is better for our environment. I mean, that's that's pretty relatable. Taiwan, where I'm based, didn't really have any renewable energy until about four years ago. And the argument was much the same. You know, there's no sun, which is only true in the north. But Actually, you know, you meet people from the UK, Germany, Seattle, they have solar panels, they have renewable energy, we can figure it out if we want to. Sort of along the same lines of energy, I think I read that Georgia has a lot of electric vehicles, and I, I haven't been to Georgia, unfortunately, but what I've heard from other people, and what I saw briefly in the Atlanta airport was that there's, there's a lot of sprawl, things are pretty spread out. Besides energy, you know, are you doing anything, do you see any kind of policy changes towards better urban transportation, better infrastructure? Yeah, that's a really good question. I personally would love to see there be some policy changes that helps us to fund public transportation the way we fund highways. Mm. If you've only been to the airport, then you were probably lucky that you did not have to get on our interstate. <laughs> we are in a perpetual state of construction. We are constantly building new lanes for more cars. And right now, the way those projects are funded, there's a mixture of federal money. There is a mixture of state money that comes from the motor fuel tax. Right now, that is the only thing outside of our lottery, which goes to K through 12 education. The motor fuel tax goes specifically to the Department of Transportation for these road projects. That money, however, cannot right now, as of now, be used for public transportation. So if we want to fund public transportation projects, we've got to fund that through federal money and make it a line item in the budget, you know, from the general fund, you know, and probably other private investments. And so it, it really shows that our priority is not necessarily toward public transit or increasing our public transportation infrastructure. We are so obsessed with asphalt and we have got to get away from that. We've just got to get away from this idea that we just need more lanes. If we just keep building more lanes, we can get rid of the traffic. And I, I, I feel like um, we have had a decades long case study in more lanes does not reduce traffic. Um, it doesn't. As our population grows, there is no amount of lanes that we are going to be able to build that is going to keep up with the growth in our state. 
And so public transportation needs to be at the forefront of all of our decision as we watch our state grow. You know, things like allowing the motor fuel tax to go toward public transportation, things like Mm. allowing for, you know, I would love to see a policy for every lane we build. We also dedicate some funds to building some type of public transit that uh, will, you know, get more cars off of the road. I I really think that's that's where we need to go. We're going to need some innovation. We're going to need people thinking outside of the box. But I mean, we're running out of space to put lanes at this point. And I literally just had a meeting with the Department of Transportation a couple of weeks ago. And as they're like outlining all these new lanes, I'm like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) And what we do um, is not we don't just say let's make new lanes. What we say is we will make new lanes that you can pay money to get in the traffic-free lanes. Oh, this is like the fast track kind of thing. Yeah, well, what it used to be, it used to be if you had uh, two or more people in your vehicle, so basically like a carpool lane, then you could go around the traffic in this carpool lane. But that doesn't make money. Right. So now they said, if you pay, you know, a dollar here, $3 here, $4, by the time it all adds up, you might've paid like, you know, 10 or 12 bucks to get from your job back home. Um, But if you're willing to pay, we don't care how many people you have in your car. It could just be you, you know, we'll take the money instead. And I think that was actually, that's backwards thinking that doesn't help us with, you know, reducing emissions And along with that, we also got rid of the incentive, the tax incentive for purchasing an electric vehicle. Um, That was something we did have. We got rid of it. The state was like, oh, well, we can't really afford this. And it was like, you know, that was back when electric cars were new and we were trying to get people to do that. But now we don't need to incentivize people to buy electric cars because they're going to buy them anyway. And so, you know, I, I think we have definitely moved in the wrong direction on some of these things. But I think that's where having people in the room who will try to uh, write the course and reverse that course and get us back on track to expanding uh, public transportation, uh, expanding different just um, mobility uh, options, uh, bike lanes. Like, I don't know if you've ever tried to ride a bike in parts of Atlanta, but it is like a death wish. It's scary. I was afraid of bikes in the U.S. I only started really riding a bike when I moved to, to Asia and there's huge bike lanes and bike bridges and all yeah, sorts of things. Yeah, we don't have those things in Georgia. I mean, we have them in certain pockets, but in a lot of places, there are no bike lanes. And it's technically illegal to ride your bike on the sidewalk. And it is scary as all get out to ride your bike on the regular street because people don't really know how to, they don't really understand what to do when there's a bike pedaling, you know, 10 miles an hour in a lane where the traffic is 45 miles an hour. So yeah, it's, these are things that I would love to see more conversation around here in our state all of these other options instead of building more lanes. We do not need more lanes. Yeah. I mean, being from California, more lanes just means more cars and exactly. it's just this perpetual cycle. But, uh, you know, and I, I don't know what's wrong with the bus. I don't know why Americans are so against the bus. You know, any uh, many other countries you go to, the bus is a nice experience. It's pleasant. It's clean. It's, you know, well-maintained. It's clear where it's going. Same thing with biking. You know, it doesn't, it, biking doesn't have to be this adrenaline sport. You know, it can just be a, an easy 
easy way to get around the city. Right. And I will say for buses in the United States, depending on where you are. So for example, New York, Boston, but you know, Massachusetts, right. Washington, DC area, they have great public transportation. Right. But I feel like here in Georgia specifically, and I'm born and raised in Georgia, so I feel I can speak on this. We associate public transportation and riding buses with being of lower socioeconomic status. Mm. And so while you will have millionaires riding the subway or, you know, in New York, and that be completely normal down here in the South, we stigmatize having to use public transportation as people who can't afford a car. Mm. You know, that carries so much weight, more weight than it should. But for some people, you know, it's just a status thing to have a vehicle. Right. Plus, there's very few places you can really go that aren't like immediately on like rail lines. So um, we really are a commuter city when we could take, you know, some investment into really changing that and getting some of these cars off the road. All right, we're going to take a break because everybody needs a break sometimes. And over here in Taiwan, it's Lunar New Year. It's the new year. That means cow in Mandarin. And it's the year of the cow here for people who celebrate the moon. It's the Lunar New Year. The only science-based holiday, if you think about it. And if you don't celebrate Lunar New Year, you can celebrate the science time over at the AAAS Virtual Science Party. We'll have a link in the show notes and you can come hang out with me on the AAAS podcast library. And there's other great science podcasts there too. If you like hearing about science, maybe you'll like hearing about some of the other shows like Distillations, Third Pod from the Sun, This Study Shows, or Waste Not Wa- oh, It's my show. You can go and listen to some of our other episodes with the Honorable Dr. Jane Lubchenco, who is the former head of NOAA. Or you could listen to our conversation with Dr. Enrique Sala, who's a National Geographic Explorer. So you could just have a whole little afternoon, evening, early morning, midnight binge listen of scientists talking about how to have a better world. That sounds inspiring. I'm inspired. Go to virtual.triplas.org. All right, back to our interview with Representative Dr. Jasmine Clark. So I, I wanted to ask, what does it actually take to kind of make policy? So, you know, uh, one of the biggest parts of lawmaking, policymaking, is just convincing policymakers that this is a law that needs to be made. Mm. So the research part is very important, but also being able to articulate you know, why this is important, who is it going to affect, not only the pros, but also the cons to a policy, and to be able to articulate that in a way that people understand. And so when you're in the sciences, we get a lot of training on talking about our stuff. You know, we're constantly presenting at seminars. Mm. And, and, and although I would say, for the most part, if I were a person that was walking into, let's say, a seminar on um, astrophysics, I probably would not know what they were saying at all <laughs> um, because I don't study astrophysics. But I do think we get used to presenting ideas to our peers mm. and you can use that training to, to cater to different audiences. 
And honestly, in the last couple of years, I've really pushed away from the bench and really been more in the classroom. And so being that I teach science, I have been able to use my lecturer hat in ways to really articulate why something is good or why something is bad. Um, I've been able to use that to ask the question that might get someone else in the room to think about things in a different way than they weren't thinking about it five minutes before. Hmm. And so all of that is important. But, you know, in order to get bills passed, it's not just about having a good bill. I wish it was. It's also about being strategic about getting policy passed, especially if you are like me in the minority party, where it's very hard to get anything passed just by virtue of you're in the minority party and you don't have the votes. So, you know, it's it's people describe policy making as like sausage making. Yeah. And before I was actually in the room, I didn't really understand. Like it kind of like made sense to me in like a ha ha funny kind of way. But after being there for just two years, that is probably the best way of describing policymaking. It's gross. It's nasty. At the end of the day, you might get like a really great product, but a lot of stuff went into making that happen. <laughs> That's a pretty good explanation. Yeah, I'd heard the sausage making thing too. And I I never really, I thought it was just kind of haha funny. It's like all these random different pieces go inside of it, yeah, like some kind of skin to hold it together. Yeah. and But you know, when you see the sausage at the end, you don't really think about the process of making it and the process of making it is actually kind of gross when you think about it. Oh, yeah. But in the end, you just appreciate that the sausage is made. You just put it on the grill. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I think it's, it's the perfect metaphor for kind of what goes on in the halls and in the chambers of our capitals, both at the state level and at the federal level. So you said, you know, things can be messy during lawmaking. And I think that the past four years have been probably peak, hopefully peak public messiness for a lot of people. And, you know, for some, that's been the opposition between the U.S. administration and sort of the scientific community. There was, you know, the March for Science, which was sort of a response. But now, you know, it's been you've been elected for two years and things are hopefully about to change pretty dramatically in January. But, um, you know, what does it feel like inside? You, you said it was messy. How do you work with Republican colleagues on these types of laws and issues? Like what's your strategy for making the sausage? You know, honestly, it's really communication. I think that it's a good balance of letting them know what needs to be done while also letting them know what's in it for them. You know, even if something is a good idea, they still want to know what's in it for them or what's in it for their constituents. How can I put this on a flyer and, you know, make myself sound good when it's re-election time? Mm. And so that's really uh, what it boils down to, packaging things in a way that they're attractive to a person who normally would not have been attracted to it. And I actually had this conversation earlier. We pass a lot of bills in Georgia, hundreds of bills, and most of those bills are actually bipartisan. Like most of the bills pass with almost unanimous yes to those bills. Hmm. There are every session a handful of contentious bills 
Those are the ones that make the media. And so those are the ones that make it seem like we're constantly at each other's throats. Mm, interesting. But at the state level, there is a spirit of bipartisanship for most things because everyone kind of recognizes when we bring forth a bill, we're doing it because it's you know a good policy or hopefully it's a good policy. Not all policies are good. I will say that. But we're doing it because we think it's going to do somebody some good. And we agree on a lot, but there are also times where we don't agree. And when we don't agree, that's where you've got to pull out your communication skills. That's where you've got to pull out your strategy. That's where you've got to know when it's time to debate for hours and know when it's time to just shut up and vote. Mm. Like there's a lot that goes into just strategizing how to get bills passed or how to stop bad bills from passing. Usually if a bill is bad, there are multiple people in the room, no matter what side of the aisle they are on that think it's bad. And then it really boils down hmm. to who will be bold enough to go against the party lines and vote against it. Um, but also when a bill is good, uh, what usually happens, at least here in Georgia, if a bill is good, uh, a member of the majority party will just redraft that same bill um, with their name on it, and then that one will pass, even if it was originally drafted by someone in the minority party. But, you know, usually when that happens, it's one of those things where do you care more about getting the credit or do you care more about getting policy? Huh. Um, and a lot of times you kind of have to swallow your pride and say, this is a policy that I want to pass. This is something that I really care about. And I don't care if it doesn't have my name on it as long as the policy itself is passed. So, again, there's a lot of, you know, mm. that back and forth that goes on. Um, but in the end, uh, you know, you, it's really communication and strategy. That's really great. It's really good insight into how, you know, politics is, is working in the U.S. in 2020. And, you know, the past few years, I think a lot of people don't really get these kind of candid conversations with elected officials. I think it's, you know, very high level, very contentious. So I really appreciate you kind of, you know, laying this all out in a, in a clear way. So, I mean, I, I didn't want to talk about COVID too much, but something that I've seen in other cities is how the COVID sort of lockdowns or even slowdowns have changed urban spaces and opened up more public transportation and, you know, like slow streets and things like that. Has Georgia seen any kind of you know, maybe, maybe let's just say positive changes from COVID in that sense. Has there been, have people kind of become more aware of biking or public transit or did it have the opposite effect where people just want to be in their cars even more because they're kind of afraid of other people now? I think what ended up happening is at the beginning of COVID, when we were really shut down and, you know, businesses decided that everyone's going to work from home and, you know, we, we really went digital for a little while. The traffic was it was gone. It vanished. It was almost magical. It was like, you know, I never would have imagined that you could get from point A to point B in 15 minutes in Atlanta, because for the as long as I've lived, it has taken 45 minutes, no matter what. Hmm. And so I think a lot of businesses are continuing the work from home option. And, you know, that gets some of the cars off the road. But I have to say that while I thought it was amazing that we finally figured out the formula to get cars off the road, sadly, it had to be a pandemic. It was short lived. Um, the mm. moment we started opening back up, 
uh, everything went went right back to normal. Like it's really kind of sad how back to normal it went. So <laughs> the moment people could go back to work, they hopped right back in their cars and hopped right back into rush hour and it, it started all over again. So I would say that lessons that we can take from the pandemic are if businesses have the option to allow their employees to work from home, even if it's not every day, that is a one way that we can contribute to reducing, you know, carbon emissions in our state. And it's so simple. Mm. And we know that it's possible because it happened. We actually saw it happen. But one thing I will also say is to your point earlier, a lot of people were afraid to get on public transit because you're in an enclosed space with strangers. Right. And unfortunately, I'm sure the international community has seen this. You have a lot of people in the United States that refuse to wear a mask or do any basic, simple pandemic mitigation strategies at all. Like they won't wear masks. They will not not stand within six feet of you. You know, they will not cover their mouth when they cough. Oh, my God. Yeah. I know. And, and, you know, I traveled to other parts of the world. And when I see how the sense of community and like village that people have in other places and I come back to the United States, I'm like, we really are kind of like every man for themselves here. Yeah. When it comes to public transit, unfortunately, it's really hard to get everyone to do the right thing. And, you know, you don't really want to catch COVID going to work. So it's just kind of one of those things where people, you know, try to make the best out of the situation. But I, unfortunately, I don't I did not see more public transportation ridership versus driving in cars due to the pandemic. Well, when the pandemic's over, I invite you to come to Taiwan. I think you really like it. Mask adoption since January. And uh, when you're surrounded by everyone else wearing masks and they look at you, you quickly put on the mask. But if you don't have that critical mass of people doing, you know, good disease prevention strategies, then I guess I could see how, you know, things are like that in the U.S. But it's, it's been hard. It's been hard to watch from afar. And then, you know, also, too, our vice president or Taiwan's vice president at the time was uh, an epidemiologist who'd, who'd studied SARS, and he just happened to be the vice president right when COVID was breaking out. So I think that was also really helpful just to sort of add an international support for what you're saying about science in now, politics. I have been genuinely envious of uh, countries that have people in leadership that have science backgrounds because I feel like they just handled this whole thing better. And um, it's I have a little bit of envy and, you know, kind of the reason why I'm here, I think that underscores why we need those science voices in policymaking, because in times like this, in times of crisis, in, a, in the middle of a pandemic, you have people that are not only understand the science, but are willing to listen to the science and the scientists and follow the data right. and keep up with it and adjust accordingly. You know, we just didn't have that here in the United States. Unfortunately, we happened to be in a pandemic during a time where we probably have the worst president we will probably have ever have in history. Let's hope. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I really hope it can't get worse. Um, I really do. But I just think that having a, a president that was pretty much anti-science from day one 
having to deal with a pandemic where we really needed to lean on science, it was really unfortunate for the United States. And it's really unfortunate for the 300,000 plus lives that we've lost um, in our country, um, including like my friends um, and, you know, some of their loved ones, they are no longer here. So, you know, if we don't all like burn up from ignoring climate change, (laughs) choke to death from ignoring what we put into our air, get poisoned from what we put in our water or die from a pandemic, then it's like, come on, like, if we can't, if that doesn't show you why we need science voices in leadership, I don't know what will. And and on that note, Representative Clark, do you have any words for, you know, young scientists or just any scientist who's thinking about getting into politics just before we end? Anything else you want to you want to say to inspire them, to encourage them? Because clearly they're they're needed in, in the legislature. Yeah, I would absolutely encourage any young scientist who even remotely thinks that they might want to go into policymaking to look into it. Don't hesitate. Don't second guess yourself because, you know, you're in science. You don't necessarily think that you'll fit. I went through that. I went through that in my own head where I was like, I don't really know if I'll fit in this environment. But once Mm. I got in the environment, I realized that we probably needed this a long time ago. And so I would encourage anyone who is thinking about going into policy to really explore that option. And even if it's not running for office, even if it's, you know, just contributing to policy in other ways, maybe through advocacy or lobbying or however. But if that's something that's on your mind and on your heart to do, don't ignore it. Go for it. And don't feel like you have to like have all this experience because I can promise you there are a bunch of people in the room that do not know what the heck is going on. And (laughs) we'll probably be one of the smartest people in the room on day one. (laughs) That's that's sage advice. I I hope people listening uh, take inspiration. I'm certainly it's inspiring for me to to talk to someone who's a scientist and a legislator in the U.S. And it's really encouraging. And it's uh, if I ever go back to the U.S., something I'm definitely going to look into. So thank you very much, uh, Representative Jasmine Clark, for taking the time to talk with us. And yeah, happy to have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invite. This was amazing. And I, you know, look forward to future conversations, hopefully. And I look forward to seeing more scientists going into policymaking. I'll send them. I'll send them your way. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. I'm Nature Nate, and this has been the Waste Not, Why Not podcast recorded at Future Ward, a co-working space in Taipei, Taiwan. If you made it to the end of the show, you must like it. And if you like it, you might want to help pay for it. And you can do that by becoming a Patreon and supporting us there on patreon.com slash wastenotwhynot. If you can't support us financially, that's okay too. Just tell a friend. Tell multiple friends. Word of mouth is really what works best for a small yet influential show like us. Do you have a question for us? Tweet them at us. We are WasteNotPod on Twitter and our DMs are open. And Daniel, DM means direct message. It doesn't mean anything weird. It's a normal part of internet parlance. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever. Give us a good rating to let us know you really care. This has been a Ghost Island Media production. This episode was produced by Yu Chen Lai and myself, Nature Nate. Our executive producer is Emily Y. Wu. Edited by Yu Chen Lai. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey, remember remember winning?
Are you winning, son? It's like Warnock and Ossoff. And it's like the Viking guy. Are you winning, son? Travel back in time, that meme would go viral. <laughs>